0: 5 five. I'm your host, Doug Sparks, editor in chief of Merrimack Valley Magazine. Lou, how are you doing this week?
1: Doing very well today. It's been a lot of technical issues today. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. and and I carried uh,
1: over into your show. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, well <laughs> we're, 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 they've been resolved. They've been resolved. Yeah. Um, I, I, as I was telling you before the show, I'm miserable. Yeah. Um, because I was stung by Yellow Jackets yesterday, and I'm allergic to Yellow Jackets. In fact, at a certain point in my life, I was so allergic to Yellow Jackets that I would go into anaphylactic shock and be within minutes of, of death. So wow. I, I, I as if start not, starting on a high note. As if they're not bad enough. As if they're not bad enough. Yeah. yeah. I, I've had some incidences, incidences in my life that were uh, no fun, uh, where I was kind of uh, seconds away from, from disaster. Uh, so they put me on um, injection therapy, so I can tolerate the stings now, but I still get a reaction to them. So my what my, does that entail? Injection therapy. Uh, so it, t- it takes going weeks and weeks and weeks to uh, an allergist, and you get these injections, mm-hmm. and they you have to kind of sit around. They have to monitor you to make sure you don't have a reaction to the small amount of the venom that so they're it's, giving so it. tolerance build up yeah they, they yeah. build up the tolerance over time and then you're supposed to you know so you go it's like weekly and then it becomes monthly and then it becomes four times a year and then it, it um it's it sort of trails off after that so i um my my right forearm is is puffed up like Popeyes. i look i've got a little bit of a Popeye look going on here in my arm uh I, i'll spare everyone that, you know i i was stung a couple times in the, the chest and belly yeah um, so that was, that, and then for, for some reason it gives me this crazy headache. So if I go down and like tie my shoes or something, it feels like my eyeballs are Ugh. going to pop up. Well, thanks <laughs> for coming. Good times, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, what a lead-in for, for Ryan. Our guest today is Ryan Turner, who's the new music director at the Newburyport Choral Society. Ryan, can you hear me? I can hear you, Doug. Hey, so can you I, hear me? I can hear you absolutely. So I want to start a little bit with a digression before we get into the new report, Coral Society, and, and who you are and how you got involved. You're also a music educator. And, yes, I am. And I just think this is this must be a really challenging time. You tell me, right? Maybe it's a time of opportunity <laughs> for music educators, given what's going on in the pandemic. And it was—I don't think it was easy before the pandemic. And now this sort of crisis must change everything, right?
2: Well, yeah, it does. There are definitely um, some huge obstacles to learning, especially when we're talking about music, which is a, a a synchronous activity. And as we know, there are very few platforms, if any at all, that are truly synchronous to teach music online or virtually. Hmm. So, And so much of what music is about is the communication that happens from individual to individual Mm. and the sort of the sense of community that happens in making music and the sharing of emotions and of a message. And when filtered through zoom or whatever platform you're using, there's a lot of that that's lost. Right. So yeah, it presents a number of challenges. I teach at the Longy school of music, which is a graduate conservatory in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're, there are so many different models we're trying to make it all work but yeah it has its challenges but it also i'm trying to look at this with the glass half full mentality so i don't drive myself crazy sure (laughs) and try to recognize there are some opportunities that present themselves
0: yeah so what are you doing as far as opportunities what are you you looking at
2: well one of the things that happened i teach a course at the laundry school of music on the history of oratorio and a seminar, a performance and historical seminar and oratorio, which was always in person. And one of the things we're doing now is we're doing it with recorded accompaniment tracks, which the the benefit from that is that the level of preparation from the singers, the students, is exponentially better because the amount of practice they have to put on to synchronize their singing with a pre recorded track makes them that much more prepared and it also enables i think for a slightly um more robust conversation on zoom than one has on, has in person and uh it enables everybody to have a voice in a way they wouldn't otherwise have
0: so it, it's another kind of minor digression, but I have to ask you, because I, I like talk. I like asking music people about this, and I, I wanted to ask about the, uh, the streaming services, because um, for a lot of people, the streaming services, it, that's the main way they, they get music, that's the main way they listen to recorded music, um, and the, the options right now aren't great for classical and early music. Uh, what do you think of the streaming services, or do you listen to vinyl or CDs, or do you, do you personally have another method of listening?
2: I listen. I subscribe to Apple Music, and I use that. And I also have, you know, Amazon Prime that I use. I feel like I'm making a commercial right now, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but there are a number of organizations now that have started their own YouTube channels. Hmm. Like for example, in the classical world in Boston, there's the Boston Symphony um, channel. There's Boston Baroque has one. I think the Handel and Haydn Society does. There's BMOP, which is the Boston Modern Orchestra project. They have their own radio station online. So there are a number of options depending on where your affinity within the classical music genre lies.
0: Right. But the, but YouTube doesn't, well, I don't know, at least with my sound system, YouTube isn't going to give you the the, the sound quality even if like a, a CD.
2: No, it, it definitely doesn't. And that's one of the challenges unless you have, you know, like I just purchased a really good Bluetooth speaker that attaches to my, that I can use to sync up to my computer, and I can get good sound. But yeah. you know, in generally speaking, you're not going to get great sound coming out of your laptop.
0: Sure, sure. So when did you uh, when did you first get involved with the Newburyport Choral Society? Well, this is a
2: very new position for me. Uh, I was just appointed back in March or April, I believe it was, in my. Work began in April and then officially in June. So there's a gentleman before me, uh, Dr. George Case, who was with the group since 2014. He stepped down. He was moving to New Mexico, and they did a a search, and uh, I applied. I live um, about 15 minutes from Newburyport here in the Merrimack Valley.
0: Yeah, you're in uh, Haverhill, correct?
2: I'm in Haverhill. Hmm. And one of the things I've always been interested since we moved to Haverhill eight years ago was how can I get involved in making music within my own community
0: Hmm.
2: as opposed to just doing stuff in Boston and Cambridge and, you know, nationally and internationally, but how can I make music in my own community?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have to admit, I was a little surprised when I found out you lived in Haverhill because of, of some of the other work you do when you're not uh, working with the the choral society is Boston centered, right? So why would, why do you live in Haverhill?
2: Well, I live in Haverhill because, uh, my wife's family is from Groveland. She Mm. grew up in Groveland, just over the river. And so we're about eight minutes away from her family. All my family's in Texas. So we're a long way. I'm a long ways away from them. Her family's all within 15 minutes. Uh, we have two kids, so it's nice for them to be near family. Mm. Um, we like the area and I, even though most of my work is in Boston, one of the things that I've often wanted in my own career was to have this sort of what I call the three-legged stool of making music. And the first is in education, the second is professional, and the third is community. Hmm. And I, It was important to me to fulfill that community aspect of, and I feel like one of the things that's important for musicians is it, it's, it's easy for us to get sort of insulated in looking for the next best, most professional project and I think what's in some ways more important is giving back to your community and finding a way that the making of music is more at a grassroots level. That's simply about the joy of making music and less about um, the highest, um, you know, cutthroat professional standards, but about the community of people making music together.
0: Yeah, it's it still seems like a big, uh, I'm, I'm, maybe the word isn't burden, but it's, it's a lot, right? Because all of these elements of this stool you're talking about require a lot of work and effort and focus and concentration, all right? And then you say, well, I'm going to do all of these things, right? I'm going to be an educator, a performer, and I'm going to, um, you know, do what I can to... To bring this music to the community, it's it seems like a lot. You must uh, you must drink a lot of coffee, or uh, not sleep a lot, or like how do you how do you how do you do this? How do you work this?
2: Yes, to all of
0: those. But
2: you know, when you love this, may sound cliche, but when you love what you do, it doesn't seem like work. Mm-hmm. And much of the time, it, it I feel really fortunate in that my job is to make beauty with all the people around me, and teach people how to make beauty. And so it doesn't necessarily feel like work. I mean, yes, there there's a lot of the administrative end of things, the planning. That takes time, but, you know, it's toward a bigger goal. And, you know, I have two small children, and my wife is also a musician. So balancing our schedules presents numerous challenges. But we work through it, and uh, I, I guess it's the only thing I know how to do. Hmm. So that's, <laughs> i've been a professional musician since um the early 90s so
0: yeah so you grew up in, i do. you grew up in texas
2: i grew up in el paso texas and then i went to move to dallas in 1990 to go to grad to go to undergrad excuse me at southern methodist university yeah and then i moved to boston in 95 to go to the boston conservatory and i've been here been in the New England area since 95.
0: Yeah, I mean, Texas isn't the, the first state I think of when I think of Bach and, uh, and Mozart. How was your path to music in, in El Paso? Where did that come about? Um,
2: I always sang in a church choir as a kid. I sang in the El Paso Children's Chorus. I was, my mother was led the church choir um, at our Lutheran church growing up. Um, I picked up the violin. I picked up cello. Just because I had an interest in it, but most of it was, my interest as a kid was not in classical music. I was, I played fiddle in a bluegrass band. I sang it. I used to, my mom used to take me to, um, country western nightclubs and I'd sing with the band there. It was an odd upbringing in that way, but it led me to classical music because interesting story in that my mother had a very close friend who was working on her PhD in voice at University of Texas, El Paso. And the focus of her dissertation was the male changing voice. So as I was going through puberty and my voice was changing, I was essentially her case study.
0: Hmm.
2: And so I had voice lessons and had a teacher that took me through the change of voice and really instilled a passion in classical music for me and uh, led me to SMU to study. And one thing led to another. And I came to Boston actually thinking what I wanted to do was musical theater. And I had a voice teacher that gently led me in the direction that um, I think was the, the best choice for me. Especially towards earlier music and Bach, and then that led to other conducting opportunities. And I wouldn't say I took a um, traditional path to where I am now. That's for sure.
0: Do you still listen to country music? Yeah, I, I
2: daily <laughs> and bluegrass. And oh, great! Yes, in fact, I I try not to listen to classical music too much. Why is that? Oh, I think because it's always in my head, I, and mm. I'm. Much of my day is spent either at the piano, listening to music I'm working on, practicing, looking at a score and it's in my head. It's important for me to sometimes turn off that part of my brain and also realize there's a whole other world out there that exists that doesn't know a thing about Bach or Mozart or it's not even part of their vocabulary. Um, and And I like it. I like listening to other types of music.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's funny you mention that because Julie Skolnick, who's the music director at Mistral Music, uh, she was on the podcast um, a couple of months ago, and she said she didn't listen to class- classical music almost at all at home, and mo- mostly listened to folk. Yeah, which I found surprising. Hmm. I guess I, I but, but but it makes it makes perfect sense. Did you see the Ken Burns uh, PBS uh, um, multi part series on, on country music?
2: I saw parts of it. I didn't see all of it, but yes, I did see some of it.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. If you, if you give no, chance. I didn't even know it existed. Oh, it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's great because it's it, great. it. There's some amazing footage, uh, that and I like a lot of country music, particularly older country music. And there's a lot of footage I hadn't seen. But mm. the way it puts everything into a historical context, I, I just uh, I I felt like my brain was being put in, inside of a rocket ship and sent off to Mars. It was it was uh, <laughs> it was it was a lot to absorb and uh, just. Uh, it's it's really worth uh, worth checking out. So that's cool. So tell me more about the Newburyport Choral Society because we have people listening who live in Lowell and Lawrence and they might be a little bit far away from Newburyport and they, they might not know much about the organization when it started, who's involved.
2: Yeah, so Newburyport Choral Society is an 85-year-old organization that is a community chorus that's dedicated to the cultural enrichment of its members members and of the community. It's a non-auditioned choir of about 130 voices, give or take, depending on the concert. So everyone is welcome. It's not one of these things where you've got to come in and audition for the conductor and, um, you know, uh, pass a certain audition standard. Everyone is welcome. And what's great about that is that there is a wide range of experience and talent some people read music some don't some are great singers some are new to it and there's a real sense of camaraderie in the way people the members lean on each other to learn the music learn more about singing learn more about the musical background learning about reading music some are, li- are learning by ear um the focus is all classical music but there are sometimes you know little divergence that the, uh, the group might take to pops concerts or jazz or, you know, something like that. Uh, they meet every Tuesday, um, Tuesday nights, basically from September through May for rehearsals, and usually two concerts a year, a holiday concert, and then one in May, and both concerts are usually with a professional orchestra.
0: Yeah, now some members have been involved with the Society for, for decades, correct? Oh, indeed. Um, yes, I I was,
2: since I'm new to the group, but I'm just getting to meet everybody, I've been having these... I had a series of Zoom calls with 16 people on each call from the group to get to meet all of the members, which was fascinating to get to meet them individually and learn about people that, you know, have been in the group since the late 70s, early 80s. That's, you know, the tremendous amount of history that they have with the group is exciting to hear about. What do you think? And then there are a number of new members as well.
0: Sure. Why why do you think, what is it about this society that makes people want to continue doing this for decades?
2: Well, you know, there's, there's really nothing that one can compare, I, I think, to choral singing. The idea of you yourself are the instrument. It's not, the instrument isn't something external. It's not, you know, a violin or a flute or a trumpet that you put in a case. But you are the instrument. And the idea of sharing that with someone next to you, someone across the room, sharing it with an audience, there's a... There's a vulnerability that comes with singing because you are the instrument. And the idea of doing it in a group, there's a sense of safety and comfort as well, as opposed to a solo singer who's really sort of putting themselves out there. But knowing you have, you know, 129 other comrades with you to do this and share this music. And unlike a um, instrument, the voice is only one that has text. So there's that added layer of communication where one can share amazing poetry as well and there's this rich history of you know a thousand years of music history that one can share through singing in a community group and there's also and i think this is the part that's been perhaps the most challenging for during this pandemic is there's the social aspect of singing Hmm. and gathering in a group together and that's where I think there's been the most heartbreak among our, our members who's been not being able to gather in a group together because there's this a tremendous social aspect of singing
0: together. Sure. And, and some of these members, it's, it's my understanding, they're, they're not just people who live in New Report and the immediate towns, right? People, people come from a distance to participate in this, right? Yes, indeed. I, I, I mean, in the,
2: my understanding is we have some members, you know, all the way in Haverhill, Pithulon, up to even up to exeter new hampshire and all around Newburyport, Raleigh, newbury port rowley newbury etc there's a member from danvers so it's all across the merrimack valley and the north shore
0: yeah so so as far as people getting involved uh at least traditionally say there's like a, there's no audition process so anyone can do this i can i could you know pre-pandemic i could sign up or, and start showing up at the rehearsals correct exactly uh do, do you can you imagine, or in, situ- in these types of organizations, do you ever get people who just kind of don't have it, where you have to sort of take them aside and say, listen, uh, you know, we appreciate your passion, but, you know, maybe you can help us in other ways? <laughs> well, this, um,
2: not that I know of, and I, I have no plans for that, of course. I Ten years ago, I conducted a group in Concord, New Hampshire, Concord Corral, which was a Community course as well, but it was an auditioned community course of about 75 members. So there was a whole audition process where there was some filtering out and you could decide and redirect people and say, hey, you know, maybe once you work on these things and come back in a year, that's not the case at all with the Newburyport Choral Society. Um, one of their big, um, part of their mission is, a- is to have access. Everybody has access to the group, no matter what. So, uh, no, there is no filtering out process. Um, if somebody is struggling, we pair them up with somebody who isn't, and that can sort of have a, a musical choral buddy, as it were, alongside of them to help them, help them along the way.
0: Hmm. Uh, so, let's see. Plans. Um, so you, right now, I, I, actually, I want to get to the big question now, and the big question is, what, what's happening? What's happening this fall? What's happening this winter? What can we expect?
2: That's a great question. Something that we've been talking about all summer long. And uh, we'll be making some final decisions coming up, actually, in the next week or so. But mm. we will continue. I mean, New Report Choral Society is not going away. We have a sort of new, new normal, as it where We've learned throughout this pandemic that choral, um, well, singing is sort of a what we call a super a super spreader event because of the amount of droplets, the aerosolization when one sings and the force at which it comes out of your mouth, um, it spreads like the six foot rule doesn't apply to singers. Hmm. We need to have more space. So the idea of us coming together as a group before a vaccine or before there's more safety is not is not realistic. So we are going to have weekly rehearsals via zoom from the safety of each member's home and it will now be more of a um until we're able to come back for a concert we're going to spend a lot of time digging deeper and laying choral foundations um, and talking about music in a deeper way talking about vocal pedagogy doing warm-ups we're going to have some guests come talk to us almost expanding it to more of an adult education program Mm. until we're able to meet in person again. And we're also going to sort of uh, explore, experiment with some uh, virtual choir activity. Um, But so far, the members are very enthusiastic. I mean, there was an annual meeting just a few weeks ago, and we had nearly 100 members on Zoom participating, and I anticipate they will all Show up every Tuesday night for our weekly rehearsals that will be on Zoom, and we'll also have the chance to look and start to rehearse on Zoom the music that we'll be doing in our spring concert. Hmm.
0: So, can people get in, can new people get involved right now? Most definitely. In
2: fact, I think in some ways it's a great time to get involved because we have the gift of time, in that we're not preparing for a holiday concert. So often when a new conductor takes over the group, the first thing they're faced with is, you gotta get a concert on its feet. You only have a few number of weeks and you're gonna be performing in public. And of course, that's the first judge of how things are going is what's the concert like. But what we have now is the opportunity to sort of dig deeper into some of the choral foundations and singing pedagogy and looking deeper into the music and getting to know each other And we're going to reach out to high schools and college students and church choirs. Um, So I think it's actually a great time to join the group because you're not under the pressure of a clock for a performance, but you have an opportunity to get to know more of the people and also get to um, sort of establish stronger singing foundations before We go back to singing in a group in person.
0: Yeah. So, so say you, you do have a a concert in the winter or or the spring, how do you go about programming that? Are you, are you thinking thematically, are you thinking in terms of, of maybe like the national discourse or what's going on internationally? Are you thinking of the mood of the country in terms of, of politics? Like how much does the programming reflect what's going on in the world outside the performance space?
2: It reflects it quite a bit, I'd say. Um, There seems to be, well, let me back up. We we know we won't have a holiday concert. That just doesn't seem like a realistic endeavor or a safe endeavor at this point. So we're looking to hopefully have a spring concert sometime in May. Hmm. And the program that I'm tentatively put together is called The Promise of Living, remembrance and renewal and the idea is the first half is going to sort of essentially mourn the the tragic loss that has been all around us given this pandemic and the second half is hopefully to celebrate a sense of renewal and hope for the future also embedded in that program are uh, turning our attention toward ideas of diversity equity and inclusion So, you know, we've been faced this summer with not only the health crisis, but a cultural and social crisis. Mm. And I think many arts organizations, while are heartbroken about not being able to perform together, it in a way has forced our hand to look inward and address some of the systemic exclusionary activities that we have done over the years, unknowingly, especially in the world of classical music that has focused most of its attention on the Western canon of um, dead white men. And so I think we have a responsibility, and I'm actually very excited about the idea of us looking forward to new composers, but also looking back at composers that have been marginalized over a number of years of history because of either their gender or the color of their skin. So one of the things, for example, that we're going to be working on is a piece by an African-American female composer from the 19th century, um, Undine Smith Moore, Mm. um, who was writing classical music, spirituals, gospel music. And so I think it's important for us to, always in our programming, to... Recognize how um, diverse we can be, and the hope is that, especially in a, you know, the Merrimack Valley in Newburyport, it's it's not necessarily an incredibly diverse community. Hmm. Um, and my own personal goal, and I'm doing this with the groups I work with in Boston as well, is trying to think about, okay, in 10 years, what do we want? the classical music world to look and sound like any change that happens is going to take a long time but i think what's important is that we're not looking at it as what can we do what's a quick fix what can we do now what's going to be a token action but what is something that is going to be meaningful and long-lasting and the classical music world has been um rather what I would call whitewashed over hundreds of years and has not been open to a more diverse community of performers, a more diverse community of composers, and therefore the audiences haven't reflected who's on stage, what composers are being programmed. So my hope is that through um, deliberate actions as it relates to programming, as it relates to reaching out to different audiences, as it relates to reaching out to different performers that, you know, this is a long-term and ambitious project for any organization, but that we can, as a in the classical music world, begin to transform what classical music looks like. Hmm.
0: You were the uh, director of choral activities at Phillips Exeter for yes. like six years. What was that yes. like? And it ties into, I want to ask a little bit about what you just said, but I, I'm, I'm interested because that was dealing with younger people, right?
2: It was. I mean, these were all high school age kids, you know, grades nine through twelve. Yeah. It was a community, uh, you know, very very bright, self motivated kids, and the, the majority of whom were there as were boarding. Hmm. Um, and uh, it these are bright kids, and the program was. Um, I ran three different choirs: a women's chorus, a small chamber choir, and then a large glee club, which was about a hundred, a non-auditioned choir of about a hundred kids. And what was nice about that program, which I really enjoyed, was that some of the work I was doing was introducing music to high school kids that really hadn't had the opportunity to do any choral singing. Hmm. And then there was also a group of kids that were experienced and really ambitious and were striving for the highest standards in choral singing, and that was the chamber group. So it was a wide range of students that I was able to work with.
0: Yeah, I I just wonder, I mean, as part of of long-term, dealing long-term with some of these systemic issues you you pointed out, how much of that involves dealing with young people and targeting young people and and working with the, the next generation and the generation after that of performers and composers and conductors?
2: That's a great point, and it, a lot of it does. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in with the Newburyport Choral Society specifically is how we can reach out to area high schools and see if we can get some of their students involved. Also, we have an ongoing uh, collaboration with the Greater Newburyport Children's Choir. I think it's been going on for maybe six years now, and that will continue, and that's an opportunity for us to work with younger singers as well. And now they've also added to it a high school group as part of that um, organization. So their conductor, Gina McKean, is a wonderful woman who I'm having a meeting with coming up here in the next few days to talk about how that collaboration can continue. Because you're right. I mean, the other part of the sort of systemic issues within the classical music world is that... um, it has to start in the schools. Hmm. And that's a whole nother, you know, sort of a bag of issues that have their own challenges at music education in the schools, which seems to be um, waning a bit, I guess would be the best way to put it. Sure.
0: So you're, my yeah. So you're also a performer. Do you have much time? Obviously you're, you're not performing anything now, but um, say over the past year, have you had much time to focus on, on your own, singing or are you really focused on directing organizing teaching and these these other elements of of music
2: well my singing has been less and less 10 years ago when i took over the job as music I'm artistic director of emmanuel music in boston that really was sort of focused my work more towards conducting and i was it limited the amount of singing i could do but i've kept singing and i've had a few concerts in the past year and i was scheduled to do a big britain concert in march before everything got canceled hmm. i will hopefully get re um rescheduled at some point but and of course at the larger school of music i also teach voice so i'm engaged in the act of singing by working with my students but i would say the majority focus of my musical work these days is in conducting and teaching.
0: Mm. So do you, you, you ever get in those moods where you're just I, oh man I wish I could just I wish I could just sing. I wish I could just do this one thing.
2: <laughs> yeah you know yes the interesting thing about singing though is and, and I would say this only to explain why I I'm really enjoy conducting. When you're singing what's nice about it is that you just think you only have to do is worry about yourself. And you're not really doing any programming. Your preparation is just about you. Um, And there's something um, freeing about that. Whereas a conductor, you know, you're, you're, you're doing all the programming. You're doing all the planning. You're in charge of all these people. And yet, your job is not to perform. Your job is to enable the best performances in the people around you and that to me is the thing i love the most about conducting mm. my back is to the audience my job is to enable the artistry around me and it's not about me it's about everybody else so that's what i love about conducting the most and i well i love performing as a singer i was always a slightly nervous singer mm. and there was a little bit of performance anxiety that amazing it, it goes away when your back is to the audience and the people watching you are busy doing other things. <laughs> so you're
0: also a composer. No, I've done no. a little bit of arranging, but I'm not a composer. Oh, I thought I read in your bio that you were an opera composer, that you did some... Opera conduct- Oh, I've opera done a number conductor. of okay. opera conducting, yes. Had, had bad info. <laughs> uh,
1: Lou, do you have any questions okay. for, for Ryan? Yeah, Ryan, let me feed my, uh, my own personal interests here and curiosities Please, yes. with, with the technical side of this. Now, COVID has forced us all into some uh, technical situations we probably weren't ready for. And with your business and with the Choral Society, I'm guessing you have some technical challenges with Zoom rehearsals you were talking about. I don't know how that happens with the delay. <laughs> and you are talking about virtual choruses. What are the challenges uh, that COVID is presenting you technically, and how are you guys addressing them?
2: Well, there numerous, numerous technical challenges. As I mentioned, there's, Zoom, of course, is not a synchronous platform. There's a lot of latency. Right. So I've even noticed in my own voice teaching, it used to be I could do, a, you know, in person you can do a lesson, you can accompany your students. On Zoom, you can't because there's a delay. It doesn't work. So when it comes to a choral rehearsal, there's no true Choral rehearsal on Zoom. Essentially, what you're doing is you mute everybody and they're singing from the privacy of their own living room or wherever they may be. Um, if I didn't mute everyone, it would be absolute <laughs> chaos. Yeah. The sound to have to come back. Um, there are some, um, there is some software out there that enables near synchronous activity, but it only works for smaller groups and most of them require an ethernet connection right i'm thinking specifically there's a great um, new platform called soundjack that are actually a actually a voice teacher at the new conservatory ian Howell created and it works really really well but you couldn't do it with 130 people and i don't you couldn't ensure that they all have an ethernet connection right there's jam Kazam, and jamulus which are all work for like 6 to 12 people So for a large group like the Newburyport Choral Society, there's no real way to have a rehearsal. But as it relates to a virtual choir, the way we're going to do it is there's a new um, app out um, that's called My Choral Coach. And what it does, it it has editing software software within it so that one can, with one device, record to a click track, and then it... Submit it, and it you know, I can get 130 recordings of people singing their yeah. part and then edit it together, and we create a virtual choir.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to um, ask about. That sounds incredibly daunting, especially with 130 it, people. It sure does,
2: and so there's, there's <laughs> going to be a lot of
1: trial and error. Um, and it's
2: admittedly out of my realm of uh experience or knowledge, so there's a learning curve for me, and I'm you know. I've got a lot of work to do, but it's it's worth it, and it's what we have to do. We're all I, there's not a single conductor out there that isn't um, having to re-educate themselves and learn new ways to bring people together because it's um, the idea of sustaining and building community is so important during this time.
1: It sounds like you've played on both sides of the ball throughout your musical career, instrumentally and vocally. Talk about the compare and contrast orchestrating and arranging voices as opposed to orchestrating and arranging instruments.
2: Well, I mean, uh, well, I'll talk about it from the conducting standpoint. It's just, it's a whole, when, like if I'm working with, in this case, the Newburyport Choral Society, a community group, and we have a wide range of people, some that read music, some don't, some that have had vocal training, some that don't, The the rehearsal process is significantly longer and i would argue that much more rewarding because the distance traveled is so much greater than if we're talking about you know like we hire a professional chamber orchestra and we do two or three rehearsals with them and they're all professionals and the idea is they've looked at their music before they come in they come in and they just lay it down and they do it so the distance traveled is is a much shorter distance in terms of improvement and progress because they're coming in at such a higher level. But I think, and for much of the orchestra, it's, you know, it's a paid gig. They're completely committed, but that's one weekend and then they're on to the next. It's less about the sense of community and growth and camaraderie that comes from a community choral organization.
1: And finally, for me, chorus and singing provide some unique challenges, especially when you're doing... Uh, no rehearsal uh choral here, or no audition choral here where people are coming in because the challenge here one is dealing with harmony, which is difficult for people you don 't that doesn 't come naturally for people i don 't think plus when you 're working with an instrument and you you fret a string or you hit a pad or you hit a key, you get that note vocally it doesn 't work that way especially when you're thinking on melody and you're trying to produce a harmony, and that drift in between what you think you're producing and what you actually produce can be challenging. That's going to be especially difficult for people who are new to singing, dealing harmony within group. I mean, they have the cover, but that's still challenging.
2: Indeed. That, that, I love the way you um, articulated that. You know, when we, we think about a piano, middle C is always a middle C. And if you're taught where to put it, your finger goes there and you'll always get a middle C. If I told you to sing a middle C, there would be some it would be a little bit more like a search and destroy mission.
1: Especially if someone standing next to you is singing a different note. Mm. Exactly. (laughs) So that
2: you know, I think also that's so much about singing that is exciting is when you can master that sense of independence and create harmony with someone else. And when you start to think about it, this is, you know, my own body that did this. I didn't need an external instrument. Everything's housed within. Um, that's a really exciting endeavor. And indeed, there are numerous challenges that come with it because you're not, again, you can't, you know, put your finger on a fret or on a string and say this is where the note is and know where it is every time. But that's, um, you know. That's what they train us to do, and hopefully, I'll do my job well. We'll see.
1: Plus, by the way, when you get the payoff of good harmony, that's a real payoff. <laughs> that's in, indeed. It, yeah. it sure.
2: It's a payoff for the listener. It's a payoff for the conductor, and it's especially a payoff for the people that are in the midst of making that beauty together.
0: Yeah, and this this is also an area where um, musical genres that don't seem to be connected, like bluegrass and um, chamber and and uh, choral music, come together.
2: Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned bluegrass. There's a, I mean, some of those great bluegrass groups that you hear sing at the Grand Ole Opry, there's a ton of harmony that goes into vocal harmony that comes into play. And interestingly, there's actually a bluegrass mass that was written for chorus and a bluegrass band. And I'm right now blanking on the name of the composer, <laughs> but there are a lot of efforts in the classical music world to do this sort of crossover or this sort of um, melding of musical genres in that way. Hmm.
0: Well, I hope people are inspired. If they want to learn more, they can go to Newburyport Choral Society org ryan thank you so much for being our guest today really appreciate it i learned a lot our guest today has been ryan turner the new music director of the Newburyport Port choral society next week lovers of anything spicy hot capsaicin Whoa, hot scoville units we are doing <laughs> hot sauce with brian rollman from crack hot sauce next week see everybody then